Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So, per usual, we're going to do a quick COVID-19 update, but this time I promise it actually is fairly quick. And so I wanted to talk about this because it's a it's a bit of potential good news. Um, potential, small amount, but it's always nice to hear about something that is slightly at least hopeful about uh, the current situation, because as we all know... Uh, there isn't a lot of that these days. And so I definitely want to be able to at least talk about something vaguely good. And so it turns out that several pharmaceutical companies are currently working on antiviral pills to help combat COVID-19 infections. And so the reason that this wasn't a first line of uh, defense or a first line of research is that antivirals are actually much harder to develop than, say, antibiotics, because, among other reasons, viruses infiltrate our own cells in order to reproduce. And so it's harder to find medicines that can target viruses and that will not then hurt our own cells, that will only hurt the viruses and won't hurt any of our bodily um, integrity. Because with antibiotics, antibiotics are able to actually attack the um, bacteria. And so they are able to have specific ways in which they are attacking bacteria. It's a lot more straightforward. And a lot of them are found in nature already. Um, and there aren't a ton of antivirals um, that I'm aware of in nature. I don't know that there are any, um, but don't hold me to that. I did not check on that. Um, but I know that antibiotics, you know, we found a lot of them by looking at nature. And so this is the one of the big reasons why we tend to favor vaccines for viral infections and antibiotics for bacterial infections. So if you can train the body's natural immune system, that means that the natural immune system knows how to attack a virus while leaving alone the rest of the cell. And so there are some antivirals out there, and now there are at least three experimental antivirals in late-stage clinical trials in the U.S. right now. Some are being explored as prophylactics, so you would take it before or just at the point where you had been exposed, uh, and so you would get a prescription for it right after you believed that you had been exposed, and others are given within days of confirmed infection. One of the big sort of pluses about uh, antivirals is that they can be a simple pill, and so uh, easy for people who are um, adverse to uh, needles, though there actually are people who have a really hard time uh, swallowing pills, so um, definitely there is a trade-off there, but I think I would say less people are afraid of or have trouble with swallowing pills than are afraid of needles. But again, I don't have those statistics um, 
there's actually a particular kind of disorder that some people have that makes it very hard for them to uh, swallow pills. I think it's the disorder for which um, thick water is actually made is for people who have that problem. Um, there was a whole thing on the internet about thick water a while back, uh, in case you missed it. <laughs> uh, and so Pfizer has announced the start of a large trial of their pill, which is a preventative. Merck and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics began a phase 2-3 trial earlier this month for the drug Molnupiravir. I always wonder how they come up with the names. I'll have to look that up and uh, share it with you if you don't uh, end up Googling it yourself before uh, I get a chance. Roche and Atia Pharmaceuticals began large trials for their drug, currently called AT-527. Much easier to say. <laughs> and all three hope to have data to release within the first, within the next few months. Merck is actually hoping to secure emergency use authorization by the end of the year. And so uh, rants about pharmaceuticals and uh, medical capitalism aside, uh, but acknowledged. Anyways, <laughs> all three are said to be able to interfere with the coronavirus's ability to replicate and thus make it easier for the immune system to fight the infection. And so that's a big, that's a big plus because if you have less virus in your system, it's much easier for your natural immune system to be able to, you know, capture all of the viral, um, pieces in your system and neutralize them. Because that's one of the big reasons why um, viruses are able to make us so sick is because they often are able to reproduce very quickly and that overwhelms our natural immune system. Now, as we've, as I've said many times, and as anyone who is a regular listener uh, knows, that doesn't mean that these will come to a uh, pharmacy near you necessarily, because we all know that drugs that are still in trials can fail even at the last minute. But with three of them, that seems pretty good. Now, you may have heard of remdesivir. Um, and so this is an act this actually is an antiviral which has already been approved for emergency use in the US. So there is technically already one COVID-19 related antiviral. And that drug does a little. <laughs> um, it seems to help hospitalized patients recover a bit sooner, um, but we don't have a lot of data, and we especially don't have a lot of data to suggest that it actually helps prevent deaths. So um, that's kind of the thing about antivirals, which is why I am couching uh, this sort of quote-unquote good news in a lot of caveats because uh, antivirals also tend to be a lot less uh, amazing than antibiotics. Uh, so often antibiotics, uh, especially in the when antibiotics were first introduced, they were basically miracle drugs. And um, I was just listening to a podcast uh, earlier today about um, a subject near and dear to my heart, which is New England vampires. And those were uh, related to uh, tuberculosis, to consumption. And when we developed antibiotics to treat 
tuberculosis, that was literally like, it was absolutely a miracle cure. And so this disease that had plagued man going back into, you know, there are um, mummies from ancient Egypt and I think even uh, earlier human remains that show lesions from having had tuberculosis. And so that disease has been with us for a very long time. And when we were first able to cure it, it was just spectacular. Of course, these days, uh, we that's one of those fights that we almost won, but not quite. Uh, and so these days, there is a lot of um, antibiotic-resistant tuberculosis out there, um, which is really sad because it definitely seemed like one of those things that we were going to be able to conquer. Um, side note about malaria as well. Um, but again, different topic for a different day. And so antibiotics are fantastic. Antivirals are okay. Um, the best antivirals uh, that we have available right now are those that uh, help with AIDS. And so we've had some really good um, breakthroughs with treating and with preventing AIDS. And so the antiretrovirus uh, virals are actually pretty, pretty fantastic. Um, you know, they're not a hundred percent, but, um, there's been a lot of great work in that corner of medicine. And of course there's been great work there because it's been something where we have put a lot of money towards it over the years because AIDS is such a terrible, um, you know, disease and was such a, um, sort of shock to the system of, uh, humans when it began to flourish. And so we put a lot of money into researching how to treat and prevent AIDS. Now, there is actually a different kind of uh, treatment for people who have uh, COVID-19, and that is monoclonal antibodies. And so those do seem to have a greater therapeutic effect. But this treatment is, for one thing, very costly and it requires infusions in a hospital setting. Um, and so it does, there are some uh, studies that show that early treatment with this protocol can prevent serious illness, but because it's much more prohibitive in cost and also in um, the need to be in a specific place in a specific hospital setting, it's a lot harder to be able for people to have that access. So if you could just get a prescription pill, that would be much easier. Now, another comparable product is uh, Tamiflu, which you've probably heard of, which is used for, as a treatment for the quote-unquote common flu. <laughs> uh, however, the results of this drug actually haven't been very uh, encouraging either. Some scientists actually doubt that the drug should have been approved at all. Um, and so, of course, this might all, again, dampen the enthusiasm for this new uh, bunch of antivirals uh, that are coming forth for COVID-19. But, you know, it's important to be very, very clear about um, whether or not they're going to have a huge impact. I think that given Delta variant right now, and given the fact that we have so many people getting so sick, anything is worth trying. Um, 
that's been obviously approved and gone through uh, several trials. Uh, definitely, you know, not to the point where we're going to start trying literally anything. Um, but I think that it would be a good companion to vaccinations, uh, which could also, um, you know, it could be used in case of future outbreaks of COVID. So having that kind of one-two punch could be really helpful. Okay, that is all the COVID for tonight. Um, I looked at morbidity and mortality and there wasn't a whole lot there. Um, just some sort of, uh, well, of course, <laughs> studies about um, how schools that mandate masks have a, uh, I think it was a 3.5 uh, time, there was, they were 3.5 times lit, less likely to have any kind of outbreaks. Um, and those outbreaks tended to be smaller, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, that's kind of self-evident that if you have schools that have mask mandates, they're going to be less likely to have outbreaks of um, the disease. That's just, we know that masks work. And so we know that masks work for children as well as for adults. And so not breaking news. So we're going to start tonight by talking about food. Now, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, I apologize in advance. Um, personally, I'm kind of looking forward to cloned meat because I would like to be able to both eat meat and eat meat ethically. Now, I've definitely reduced the amount that I eat in general, but I have to admit I like meat and dairy, and I don't think the substitutes have quite come close enough yet to persuade me to give up on them. And I realize that that is a very human-centric, uh, you know, ideology, and I absolutely positively understand and believe that, um, you know, most people who are vegetarian or vegan are absolutely on a better track. It's just not the track for me right now. Um, though I, I really do like uh, the non-meat ground beef. Uh, there's one in particular that I will not name, uh, which I particularly like. And um, I think chicken is coming along. Um, I've had some chicken nuggets that are, or nuggety sorts that are pretty good, but I like meat. I'm sorry. I, I, I do feel like I should apologize for that because I do absolutely understand um, that, you know, vegans and vegetarians are quote unquote right. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that cloned meat is the best middle ground and I'm really looking forward to it. And so I hope that it will become the majority way in which people source their meat in the rather near future, because I would enjoy being able to have cloned meat rather than meat, uh, especially from factory farming. And, um, you know, it's hard because, for instance, my husband only eats a very few amount of things. And one of them is, of course, um, a kind of meat. He um, really enjoys chicken, but he can't eat other things. And so he has to have chicken. And most chicken comes from, you know, factory farms. And we understand this. Um, but yeah. Okay. All of that aside, <laughs> all of that, you know, moral hand wringing and, uh, you know, <laughs> and talking about um, how I think that I think most of us would probably really enjoy 
being able to eat food that was completely ethical and didn't involve uh, oppression in any way. Uh, I don't think any of us get to do that because um, even people who are vegan, uh, you know, people are still oppressed in the food chain, um, in the food production chain. And so unfortunately, we live in a world where there's a lot of oppression to go go around. Um, but again, we're going to move on and actually talk about the food science. And so researchers at Columbia University recently used several different types of lasers to cook 3D printed chicken thoroughly and without any adverse effects on the food's taste. They did this directly on a tabletop without the need for an oven or stove. And so the findings were published in the journal NPJ Science of Food. Cooking is essential for nutrition, flavor, and texture development in many foods, and we wondered if we could develop a method with lasers to precisely control these attributes, said Jonathan Blutinger, an engineer at Columbia University and the paper's lead author in a university press release. And so they first blended chicken, conventional chicken, uh, into a puree. I know that sounds delicious, but uh, they then 3D printed thin layers of it into various shapes. And so they basically made um, sort of uh, 3D printed um, chicken breast uh, portions. And so they then exposed the chicken to blue, near-infrared, and mid-infrared laser light. They found that for cooking the interior, the blue light was better, but for browning the surface, the infrared light was best. They actually found that the chicken shrank less and was moister than oven-broiled food. Two out of the two taste testers preferred the laser, the laser cooked uh, meat. Obviously, though, that is a vanishingly small sample size. Um, <laughs> that is definitely not a statistically significant sample size. Um, and but another perk is that uh, the lasers could cook the food through plastic, meaning you could potentially cook food in the packaging without having to come in contact with the raw meat and thus with potential contaminants. So, um, you know, you always have to wash your hands very thoroughly after you uh, handle raw meat because it can have all sorts of pathogens on it. But if you could actually cook the meat in the packaging, um, I think that would be really cool. Really, really um, a lot uh, health healthier in some ways. Actually, one of the uh, morbidity and uh, mortality um, papers was also trying to parse out whether or not they could see why there was a reduction in um, foodborne illness reports. And they think it could have been because, you know, people were practicing better hygiene. Um, but it also could have been that people just weren't going to the hospital to, uh, you know, <laughs> be diagnosed with foodborne illnesses because they didn't want to go to the hospital because of COVID. So it was really interesting of how can you tease out, um, you know, it, it, there has to be, there would have to be a lot more research to be able to try and tease that out because um, it's a really good example of the kind of science that is um, the kind of science where we really have to be clear that there are confounding um, effects. And so, um, you know, a lot of people get mad at science because it changes its mind and it updates things and it, you know, one day it'll say one thing and then 
Two weeks later, it'll say another thing. But the problem is, is that science is a process. It's not a, um, science is a verb, not a noun, even though science is technically a noun. Um, and so it's a, it's something that's constantly moving and evolving and changing. And sometimes it could be either or. And so we have to look at those two factors or more factors and we have to come to the best idea of what we think is happening. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually the whole point of science is to continue every day to try and learn more about how things really are. And it's one of the things I like about science, which, um, you know, I've mentioned many a time, I'm sure, is that it's not static. And what we know today, some of it will absolutely turn out to be untrue. And that's okay, because what we know today is helping us get through our day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, some of it isn't anything that has to do with our day-to-day -day lives. So, you know, some theory about how a... um about how gravity works or about how atoms move might turn out to be wrong. And, you know, that's okay. That's cool. Because we want to know what's really true. We don't want to stick with what's known. Um, and so that's one of those things that gets me really frustrated when people are like, well, science is always changing its mind. So how can we trust it? Um, and I think that that's, that's a really... Um, pushing at a category error that the reason that science is so great is because it doesn't accept answers. It is constantly trying to push against the things that it believes in in order to figure out whether or not we can do something better. Okay, so let's get back to, <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm so tangential tonight. Um, so let's get back to cooking with lasers. Uh, the researchers actually started with cookie dough uh, and other easily extruded foods because, you know, you're 3D printing. And so they have kept going from there. Um, and so this is actually at Columbia's Creative Machines Lab. And so the engineers there have been working on 3D printed foods for years. And so they envision a future where consumers could put their biometric or genome data into food printers and could create custom meals. Uh, <laughs> I'm not so hot on that, but I would still like to be able to have custom meals. That would be fun. I don't think I'd give them my genomic data, though. Um, but I am very conservative with my genomic data, um, as you may know. Uh, though co-author Hod Lipson, a mechanical engineer who leads the lab, notes that the technology is not yet scalable. We need a high-level software that enables people who are not programmers or software developers to design the foods they want. And then we need a place where people can share digital recipes like we share music, he said. Now, I am definitely excited about new frontiers of cooking um, and am totally happy to embrace new technologies for making delicious food. Um, I am very excited about that prospect. And yeah, um, Though this weekend, I'm probably going to make an old-fashioned casserole. <laughs> okay, let's move on to new research that suggests that we can finally know the age of lobsters. So you may or may not think that lobsters are delicious. Um, I like lobster. I don't like the whole dropping them in a pot of 
boiling water thing, so I tend not to eat lobster. Um, yeah, I get all of the I get all of the arguments on both sides. I tend to fall more on the you know lobster is a thing that I can eat very occasionally um, if it's in something else, but that I don't seek out. Um, and uh, yeah, but anyways, um, so. You may not even have known that aging lobsters was a thing that we couldn't do or that we would care to do, um, but it's actually important to the health of lobster populations, especially commercial populations. And so we think that some species of lobsters may be able to live past 100 years regularly, but we've never been able to really know. Um, and so most of the time, people simply guess based on the size of the lobster. So one of the problems is that they molt, for instance, so that you can't tell anything from their carapace because their carapace is probably only, you know, maybe a year old at most at any one time. Um, and so that has been a real problem. But a team at the University of East Anglia has found that slight changes in European lobster DNA as the organisms grow older are able to give a precise age for those animals. We've known for a while that crustaceans can be aged by counting rings in their eye stalks or stomachs, basically like counting tree rings. But the method wasn't proven on lobsters, and by its very nature, those kinds of counting methods uh, require the animal to be deceased. And so that doesn't really help with, um, you know, looking at uh, living populations. So geneticists and biologists from the university teamed up with the Center for Environment, Fisheries, and Aquaculture Science of the UK and the country's nat national lobster hatchery to solve the problem. And so they published their results in the journal Evolutionary Applications. Having an accurate indication of lobster age will help fisheries, scientists, and conservationists alike to understand, manage, and conserve our vulnerable lobster stocks working hand-in-hand -hand with proactive fishery management strategies such as stock enhancements, said study co-author Carly Daniels, the head of produ production science and development at the National Lobster Hatchery. Talk about a fun job, working at the National Lobster Hatchery. Um, of course, that's in Britain, so sad face. Uh, the technique involves looking at the ribosomal DNA of the European lobster, Hamaris gamaris, and examining a methyl group on the DNA strand that typically attaches where cytosine precedes guanine in the strand. And so the way some methyl groups are added or removed from the lobster's DNA can actually be mapped to precise ages. We identified a very strong relationship between age and DNA modifications, which allowed us to accurately estimate the age of individual lobsters, said co-author Martin Taylor, a molecular ecologist at the University of East Anglia in a university press release. Applying this method to wild lobsters predicted ages that generally aligned with minimum estimates of age based on size. Now, the technique is good, but it's not perfect. Young lobsters' ages could be determined within a couple of months, while things got a little less precise at the older end of the range. And the older end of the range that they looked at is currently at the lowest age range for commercially viable lobsters. So, of course, the team notes that there is still work to be done. The main unanswered questions presented here are... A presented here. 
Are age-related patterns of our DNA methylation linear into adulthood and or tissue-specific? So does it matter what tissue samples, uh, which tissue you sample? So from the claw or from an eye stalk or from somewhere else on the body, from the tail? Are they all the same or do they have different patterns? Information on whether the RNA our DNA epigenetic clock is sex or population dependent will also be of value before such a tool can be widely adopted. Finally, because of the highly conserved nature of the ribosomal DNA, there is the theoretical possibility of applying the loci developed within this study to other crustacean species where establishing chronological age is an issue, although this has yet to be tested, the paper concludes. So if they can figure this out, they might be able to use it on other crustaceans, which are also hard to uh, age and also are often commercially uh, important species. So, uh, you know, right now it's a bit of a proof of concept, but still very interesting and a great way to use a new technique to solve what is kind of an old problem at this point, which is how do we um, manage fisheries? And uh, it continues to be a very, very fraught um, frontier. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And we come back, we are going to shift from uh, food, so to speak, to uh, drink. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Words and music. Every Sunday at noon... Featuring pop poets and literary lyricists like Joni Mitchell and Lucinda Williams, Towns Van Zandt, Costello, Cohen, Cobain, Guy Clark, Bruce Coburn, David Byrne, Paul Simon and Paul Kelly, Wussy and Weaker Thans, Bob Dylan and Bob Marley with your host, Dave Madaloni, Valley Free Radio. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking 
and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Okay, we are back. And uh, once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as advertised, we are going to switch from food to drink. And so last month, archaeologists announced that they had found traces of ancient beer on ceramic vessels at a site in southeastern China dating to around 9,000 years ago. The excavation also uncovered two human skeletons, and so the researchers believed that the beer was most likely ritually consumed as part of a burial ceremony. The site, Kyautio, um, or Kyautu, is a platform mound around three-fourths the size of a football field, which was surrounded by a ditch. The site included the two burials, as well as several pits that were filled with pottery. Residue on the pottery included starches, fossilized plant residue, and fungal remains, which suggested that the vessels once held alcohol. The high-quality pottery, painted with white slip and some of them actually painted with abstract designs, includes four bowls, nine jars, and seven long-necked hoo pots. And so the researchers actually believe that they may represent some of the earliest known painted pottery yet discovered. Now, the type of hoo pots found at the site are slendered and flared at the top, and they are known to have been used for alcohol in later periods. So the team analyzed the microfossil residue from the interior of the hoo pots and found that they most likely once held a type of rice beer crafted with a mold starter. And it turns out actually that the mold starter is similar to a mold present in koji, which is used to make sake and other fermented rice beverages in modern East Asia. The researchers found evidence of both plant and microbial remains which suggested that they were ingredients for the two-step process involved in beer making. First, there is sacrification, when enzymes break down starches into sugars, and then fermentation, when yeast transforms those sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Through a residue analysis of pots from Kyautu, our results revealed that the pottery vessels were used to hold beer, in its most general sense, a fermented beverage made of rice, a grain called Job's Tears, and unidentified tubers, said co-author Jiangjing Wang, an assistant professor of anthropology at Dartmouth. This ancient beer, though, would not have been like the IPA that we have today. Instead, it was likely a slightly fermented and sweet beverage, which was probably cloudy in color. Uh, so yeah, definitely different. <laughs> um, and so they found that the beer also contained rice husks and other plants, uh, plant materials, which may have been added as a fermentation agent. Now, the rice, interestingly enough, is what suggests that the beer was for a ritual purpose. Despite the fact that rice is extremely common in most of Asia, um, most of China at least, uh, and Japan at this point in the uh, modern time, rice domestication in the research in the region actually occurred between 10,000 and 6,000 years ago, which means that at this time, 
for the mostly hunter-gatherers who would have lived in the area and subsisted mostly on foraging, rice harvesting and processing would have been labor-intensive. We don't know how people made the mold 9,000 years ago, as fermentation can happen naturally, says Wang. If people had some leftover rice and the grains became moldy, they may have noticed that the grains became sweet and alcoholic with age. While people may not have known the biochemistry associated with grains that became moldy, they probably observed the fermentation process and leveraged it through trial and error. And so... The researchers concluded that this beer-drinking ritual would have probably been used in a way to um, support social relationships and cooperation in, um, you know, burial rituals where you had family coming together and you probably, you know, other members of the um, society would be coming together and you would have this communal relationship. And this these kinds of communal relationships would be the precursor to the complex farms, which would later become large on rice some four years later. And so yeah, def very cool. And so earlier this year, a team of researchers from the University of Bristol and Goethe University in Frankfurt found earliest evidence for ancient 3,500-year-old West African cross Africa, both through wild harvest and domestic beekeeping even today and are for many people across. In the West Coast rainforest, hunting for honey is assistance practice. And while we know that honey has almost certainly been a part of human diets, that's found in art spanning 40,000 to around 8,000 years ago in Africa. And so bee products such as honey and larvae are known from historical and ethnographic research to have been used as both a food source and in the making of honey-based beverages, such as beer and wine. And so we know, for instance, that honey is often an important source of calories for modern hunter-gatherers. And so uh, groups such as the F.A. foragers of the Aturi Forest in eastern Zaire have historically relied on honey as their main source of food. Um, which actually kind of blew my mind, frankly. Um, honey is delicious, but I didn't think you could have it as your main source of food. I guess it's it's really cal- calorie dense and um, it has a lot of micronutrients. Um, I would assume, um, depending on what pollen was being sourced to create it, but yeah, as your main source of food. Interesting. And so the foragers would collect all parts of wild hives, including honey, pollen, and bee larvae. I guess that's where you get the uh, protein uh, from tree hollows, which can be up to almost 100 feet above ground, using smoking techniques to calm the bees. In this case, the discovery of honey remains was actually a surprise. The researchers from Bristol carried out chemical analysis of more than 450 prehistoric pottery fragments from the central central Nigerian Nok culture, in order to explore what they were cooking in their pottery. The Nok people are known for having created large-scale terracotta figurines and for their early production of iron in West Africa around the first millennium BCE. Unfortunately, the soil in the area is acidic, so organic remains are not preserved, making it impossible to use animal bones or plant remains in order to track their diets. And so uh, it was actually, the uh, report was actually published in Nature Communications back in April, 
where the team found that around a third of the pottery vessels they examined were used to process or store beeswax. Professor Peter Brunig from Goethe University, who is the archaeological director of the Knock Project and a co-author of the study, said, We originally started the study of chemical residues in pottery sherds because of the lack of animal bones at Knock sites, hoping to find evidence for meat processing in the pots. That the Knock people exploited honey 3,500 years ago was completely unexpected and is unique in West African prehistory. And so they were able to determine the residue was beeswax by identifying a complex series of lipids, fats, oils, and waxes as residue in the pottery. And so they suggest the beeswax was present because the Nock people were either melting wax combs through gentle heating, leading to its absorption within the vessel's walls, or beeswax was left when honey was either cooled or stored. It could have also been as used as a prevent as a preservative for other foodstuffs. Again, a modern hunter-gatherer people, the Oe the Okiek, I'm so sorry for mispronouncing these names that I'm absolutely positive I'm mispronouncing. Uh, this is the O-K-I-E-K people of Kenya. Um preserve smoked meats using honey and a number of the knock pots containing chemical signatures um, preserve meats using honey and a number of the knock pots contained chemical signatures that indicated the presence of both beeswax and meat products and as mentioned honey and beeswax could have also been used in the production of beverages both alcoholic and non-alcoholic which are once again present across the continent in the present day or it could have been used for medicine, cosmetics, or for technological purposes. And so, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And, um, you know, there's so much that can be done with honey and its associated products. We know that in the modern world, and apparently people in the ancient world most likely knew that too, um, which obviously makes total sense, and which lead author Dr. Julia Dunn from the University of Bristol's School of Chemistry wants to uh, make sure we know. This is a remarkable example of how biomolecular information extracted from prehistoric pottery combined with ethnographic data has provided the first insights into ancient human into ancient honey hunting in West Africa 3500 years ago. Professor Richard Evershed, uh, fellow of the Royal Society, who heads up Bristol's organic geochemistry unit and is a co-author of the study added the association of prehistoric people with the honeybee is a reoccurring theme across the ancient world. However, the discovery of the chemical components of beeswax in the pottery of the Nock people provides a unique window on this relationship when all other sources of evidence are lacking. So, very cool. Very, very cool. Um, yeah, now I just want some honey. <laughs> I'm sorry if I've done that to you as well. Uh, so yeah, um, really now I'm just thinking about, um, some honey ice cream that I had last, uh, summer that was just magical. But anyways, uh, so long before people, uh, began to brew beer, eat domestic chickens and perhaps even honey, um, though we don't know, they had to learn how to do things that we take for granted today. Like for instance, making clothes. And so a study led by Arizona State University paleoanthropologist 
Curtis Marion and ASU doctoral graduate Emily Hallett examined more than 60 tools made of bone and including one from the tooth of a cetacean, so a whale, a dolphin, or a porpoise. Um, and so they were looking at them and they found something really interesting. They were actually, the, the tools themselves were found in the Contrabandiers cave in Morocco in 2011. And so they are considered highly suggestive proxy evidence for the creation of clothing in the archaeological record and add weight to the pan-African emergence of complex culture and specialized tool manufacture. And so the ability to create clothing and the creation of the tools needed to create it is not only evidence of cognitive evolution, but it's also a probable precursor for human expansion into new niches from Pleistocene Africa. So basically, if you're going to go north into uh, Europe, you're going to need to be warmer, and so you're going to want to be able to make clothing. But of course, furs and other organic materials used to make ancient clothing are not likely to be preserved, and so you have to infer the development of clothing development uh, in other ways, and this has been frankly challenging. And so Hallett was studying these artifacts dating to between 120,000 and 90,000 years ago, as part of her research with the Institute of Human Origins and the Leis-Meitner Pan-African Evolution Research Group at the Max Planck Institute for Science of Human History. Now, of course, Leis-Meitner, um, or Leis-Meitner, is one of those uh, unsung heroes of science. Um, she was, um, I believe, a physicist. She was either a physicist or a mathematician who... Um, I believe she's the one who had to leave her studies because of the Nazis and um, basically for a long time was kind of written out of history. But it's lovely to see her really being able to be um, put back on the map, so to speak. But again, tangent. <laughs> and so among a collection of around 12,000 bone fragments, Hallett found more than 60 animal bones that had been shaped by humans as tools. She compared these tools to others in the archaeological record and found that they had the same shapes and use marks as leatherworking tools described in other papers. Additionally, Hallett identified a pattern of cut marks on carnivore bones which suggested not butchery for food, but rather having been skinned for furs. The combination of carnivore bones with skinning marks and bone tools likely used for fur processing provided highly suggested proxy evidence for the earliest clothing in the archaeological record, says Hallett. But given the level of specialization in this assemblage, these tools are likely part of a larger tradition with earlier examples that haven't yet been found. And so the tooth had wear that suggested it was used as a pressure flaker, basically as a tool for shaping stone tools. And so this actually represents the earliest documented use of a marine mammal tooth by humans and the only one verified from the Pleistocene in North Africa. Once again, we see that complex technologies such as bone tools are only associated with aquatic adaptations at the origin points of modern humans, noted Marion. The coast was crucial. In the future, Hallett hopes to collaborate with other researchers to compare her finds to 
to comparable assemblages in order to trace the origins and diffusion of this behavior. The contrabandier's cave bone tools demonstrate that by roughly 120,000 years ago, Homo sapiens began to intensify the use of bone to make formal tools and use them for specific tasks, including leather and fur working, Hallett summarizes. This versatility appears to be at the root of our species and not a characteristic that emerged after expansion into Eurasia. So again, in Africa, they are developing these skills and they are being able to really um, develop into what would become modern humans. And so, yeah, it is so cool to think that people so long ago were, you know, making clothing and um, processing furs in order to be able to wear them, you know, 130,000 years ago or 120,000 years ago. It's very, very impressive. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I think that one of the sort of reoccurring themes here is that, um, for instance, hunter-gatherers were actually really, really smart. Um, and they knew a lot of things that were going on. And, um, we tend to think of, you know, the advent of agriculture as where everything kind of comes together. And, you know, people start to have culture and have the ability to figure things out. But hunter-gatherers were figuring things out thousands of years before, we actually got to the point where we are doing uh, agriculture. And you need to have all of that wisdom and knowledge from hunter-gatherers in order to be able to move to becoming sedentary agriculturalists. And, um, you know, we know, for instance, when we first became uh, sedentary agriculturists, our... um, you know, our overall health actually declined (laughs) Um, because the hunter-gatherers were actually doing better because they weren't in as close quarters. And they, you know, as we began to domesticate animals, then we had animal reservoirs for diseases. And so, um, you know, it's it's important not to knock the uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And so, yeah, um, the next story I was going to talk about is actually another story about hunter-gatherers, but that will have to wait until next week um, because we are out of time for this one. And so, yeah, you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio and have a great night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.